1: A uh, very warm welcome to Squawbox. I think we're on day 26 of Davos. Actually, maybe it's only day three. Uh, and London, of course, we are in there uh, with the studio. Uh, I'm Steve Sedgwick.
2: And I'm Gary Curran These are your headlines, I would say. It's quite balmy today, isn't it?
1: <laughs> uh, China uh, hits its uh, full year GDP target, but a miss in the final quarter and weakness in the country's property sector sees Asian equities coming under pressure. The president of Poland, Andrzej Duda, tells CNBC he is not surprised Ukraine and Russia won't hold face-to-face talks and warns military spending must increase to ensure stability in Europe.
3: Everyone understands that if we don't strengthen ourselves, and if we don't show our military potential, we'll only be encouraging Russian aggression. Russia only fears strength. It disparages and destroys the weak. It only fears strength.
2: The U.S. launches fresh strikes on targets in Yemen, as Iran's foreign minister tells CNBC in an exclusive interview that America is the root cause of tensions in the Middle East.
0: The United States should not, Mr. Biden should not, tie their destiny to the fate of Netanyahu. The full-scale cooperation of Biden and the White House with thugs like Netanyahu in Israel is the root of insecurity in the region.
2: Google CFO Ruth Porat tells CNBC that AI has the potential to lift the developed and developing world, highlighting healthcare and food security as areas to benefit.
4: This is something that across any industry, any government leader here, it's the better provisioning of product, it's efficiencies that you can get, and very importantly to the theme of our conversation here, it has the potential to be the great equalizer.
0: Methodically and carefully, the Fed's Christopher Waller calls for a cautious approach to rate cuts this year, going against the grain on market expectations and comments that prompt the 10-year Treasury yield to top 4% again. So, um, good morning to you. Good
1: morning. Uh, I- I'm- I get why a lot of our viewers, why a lot of international um, citizens around the world do not like Davos. I understand it, but I don't think I could ever be in a place where you and I and the rest of the world's media can get such access to so many people in such a short period of time and see real news making going on as well. For example, I got here, it was all about Ukraine. There was an NSA conference. Then it became all about interest rates as well. Then we get amazing comments from Ruth that on on what's going on in AI and, and how the big tech companies are working towards their various projects on that. So I get the skepticism about... Um, world Economic Forum, changing the state of the world. I understand yeah. that as well. I'm not a great believer in some of the, the big grandstanding that goes on, but I do think that actually we get a real lens on what is going on in so many different policy areas, whether it's interest rates, whether it's geopolitics, whether it's technology.
2: Each year is different, right? And sure. something that was said to me behind closed doors yesterday is why is this year so constructive here in Davos, which was an interesting question because mm. we're reflecting on the previous number of years. Uh, you know, what we've seen, we of course had Trump, which when Trump turned up and uh, was blasting the mountain with certain commentary. All we saw was knee-jerk reactions from various different CEOs and policymakers. That was one year. And then we had the pandemic disruption. And then, of course, we had lots of concerns around the reopening theme around the pandemic. And then monetary policy. So it feels like this year we're getting back to basics and talking about some of the real issues. And you were tackling the geopolitics yesterday. I was tackling AI. And I've got to say, AI is such a big theme for companies. We'll sure. talk more about this later. But the overarching theme is that there's going to be some breadth to the AI story this year.
1: Yes, and we'll come back to that. I've got a good comeback, but I know we've got to move on because you and I have been very, very busy, actually. Even when we come off air, we do a lot of work, believe me. Uh, including interviews with uh, people such as the Polish president, Andrzej Duda, you know, who has pledged to stand by Ukraine, saying it's an issue of regional and global security. I asked him whether there needs to be a greater effort to back Ukraine on the battlefield or, even better, on diplomacy.
5: We've been in Ukraine przy the cały czas, od pierwszego dnia. We've always stood by Ukraine from day one.
3: I was in Kiev the day before the Russian invasion. I literally left the city a few hours before the first Russian missiles hit Kiev and other cities. I embraced President Zelensky for the last time before the Russian invasion and promised him I would support Ukraine until the Russians were driven out. And I continue this support. Poland as a nation supports and will support the country, and that goes for all Polish politicians. This isn't just a question of regional security, but of global security in my view. It's not just about Poland's security, but about fundamental human decency. If someone's invaded by another country, by a superpower, it deserves our support, because every nation has the right to live as an independent sovereign country especially having been one already. So when that country is invaded, the most basic human decency is to support those defending themselves. That's why we stand by Ukraine, and it's why I relentlessly call on support for Ukraine wherever I go, Davos included. Russian advantages over Ukraine are obvious. Territory, population, military might. But the heroism shown by the Ukrainians commands respect. We're supporting them not only by hosting refugees within our borders from the start of the war, but we also send military aid. We were the first to send them 100 tanks. In total we've sent them more than 300, as well as more than a dozen or so of the newest Leopard tanks we had in our arsenal. We've also sent long-distance AHS crab howitzers so the Ukrainians could repel Russian attacks. And we hope that Ukraine will continue to receive support until it can finally oust the Russians from its occupied territories.
1: And yet, huge support from Poland, a lot of support from other Western allies. And yet, Russia seems implacable to a certain degree in certain parts of the country. They still control 20% of the country. I spoke to Mr. Yermak from the President's Office in Ukraine a couple of days ago. He said there will be no negotiations with Mr. Putin. But in order for this war not to last another two years or another 10 years, if we consider the start was when the invasion of Crimea happened, surely the Ukrainians need to start speaking to the Russians at the moment. They won't speak to them.
5: It's hardly
3: surprising the Ukrainian authorities won't speak to Vladimir Putin, because they made it clear from the start, which I, as Polish president, completely understand. The Russians have to leave illegally occupied regions of Ukraine. This is land they're occupying. They invaded, unprovoked, for no reason, simply to gain new territory and impose their rule over Ukrainians. They attacked an independent sovereign nation, so I'm not surprised Volodymyr Zelensky and his team say clearly that the end of the war will come when they drive out the russians from all their occupied territories for me this is obvious today when i hear that many countries that have long range missiles in their arsenals that can reach enemy targets hundreds of kilometers away i thank them for sending this support to ukraine so i thank the uk france and germany because their support is paramount to making the russians understand that this war won't end with their great victory this war has to end fairly that means when Ukraine is successful in defending itself.
1: Yeah, we spent a lot of time in that interview addressing his extraordinary battle with his own prime minister, Donald Tusk, as well. But we can come to that a little bit later on in programming. Look, if ever there's a part of the world that fears Russian aggression, it's the three small Baltic states where um, I went up to the Baltics and spoke to uh, the then foreign minister uh, just after the start of the war. That was Edgar Rinkovics. Well, now he's the president of Latvia. And I asked him whether he was very concerned about the level of Western support for Ukraine.
5: There are some questions that we need to ask and, and also to answer The number one is that uh, we all understand that if Ukraine is not able to win this war, then Russia is going to move forward. And uh, second, yes, indeed, this is a bit disappointing to see that we can't agree, we can't make a decision on providing Ukraine with more military equipment or with more finances. Having said that, I'm rather optimistic that finally we are going to make those decisions
1: saw a lot of really senior Americans in town yesterday, say Kerry, Rob mm-hmm. Portman, and Sir, Mr. Blinken as well, the Secretary of State. Now, CNBC has been speaking to Anthony Blinken, who reaffirmed the country's commitment to supporting Ukraine and explained the aim of American action.
6: This is not a forever war, and it's not a forever uh, expense for us either. Even as we're helping Ukraine in the moment to defend itself, working with dozens of other countries, We're working so that Ukraine can stand strongly on its own two feet, militarily, economically, democratically.
2: On a different note, AI fever has hit Davos, overtaking cryptocurrency firms and dominating the town's main strip. In my panel, AI. They always have
1: to have some tech theme on that top strip, don't they? Yeah,
2: I did see. There's still an NFT sign in the Congress <laughs> Center. Would you believe? Um, I don't know why I that, that one up there. out on cloud? Actually, fun enough. You, I think you can collect an NFT, but there's nobody ever queuing there. In the old days, you'd go to an event if you got it offered an NFT. Everybody well, would queue. Because everyone likes free stuff. Well, they thought it was free money. Isn't it amazing. So, Do you know fine? I know we've got to move on. But
1: rich something. people love free stuff. Doesn't matter how rich this lot are. I mean, let's face it. They're all stunningly rich in this. Oh, they all like free stuff. The free hats, the free gloves, the free gadgets. The
2: free bag. The free bag. You get the free bag. Well some oh. of the white badges anyway. You get the I've free given bag. Given
1: it's one of our senior producers.
2: Yes, but I mean and that, that is a pretty good kit. Now let's come back to AI. In my panel AI the great equalizer, I asked Google's CFO Ruth Porat about the implications of the technology.
4: We have the opportunity ahead of us to address pain points, to address the SDGs. That doesn't mean that they're within our grasp if we don't deal with mitigating the downside. And extending connectivity. And so I, I think there are a number of points that are deeply substantive that need to be addressed if we're going to benefit globally from the reality of AI. One, it's everything around the guardrails to make it safe. Mm-hmm. It's everything from cyber uh, cybersecurity in an AI world to avoid the bad guys from getting in, it's watermarking so that you know about authenticity, it's transparency, it's quality. Of information. So there's a whole body of substantive work that's absolutely critical. The second, more to your question, is connectivity. A third of the globe is still not online. And so we're very proud at Google. We're an important part of that infrastructure. We're most certainly not all of it, and there's an entire ecosystem that needs to be built, but we have um, built out about a quarter of the the infrastructure needed to power the internet through subsea cables, the data center network, and every time we build a branch and we can then take a node off and connect another country, the, the response is this is a contributor to economic growth and gives us the opportunity frankly, to go exactly where Larry um, Page and Sergey Brin started with this company, which is to organize the world's information, make it universally accessible and useful. Well, you can't be universally accessible and useful if you don't have connectivity, and there's a lot of work that needs to be done um, to ensure connectivity. And then the last point is there is going to be a transition. A lot of the analysis says that in this transition there will be more jobs created than lost, which is interesting on av- for the averages, but it's not a specific answer to the individual. And so how do you deal with transition? We need workforce skilling. We're doing a lot of work at Google through something called Growth Google. But again, this is about us working with other companies, public and private sector. You need that education component of it and the reskilling component. Without these guardrails across the board, we can't realize the potential upside.
2: Ruth Porat effectively telling me that mm. it's going to be the implementers this year that win. So not just seven magnificent stocks, which I thought was interesting because she could easily have said, look, we're just going to continue to see gains from here. Well, that's kind of what we said, isn't it? Well, she was saying it is the, the companies that pick up with AI, yeah. truly run with it and put it into their business models. And we're asking every other CEO on the mountain here what they're doing. And they're all exploring the opportunities here. To me, it was still Fresenius that was the really interesting one about how they've been using yeah. it to pilot around doctors' letters. I thought that was fascinating. But I think the use cases are coming very quickly through in 2024. But uh, big, broader questions around who gets access to And Saudi Arabia's communications minister addressed concerns about AI as an equalising force, as well as global tensions over the technology. What I would recommend is that we work closely with our partners. If they have concerns on technology leakage, similar to, for example, the Kingdom have just acquired Lucid as as an EV, the last thing we want is patent or technology leakage. And if it's necessary to put restrictions around that, we're all for it, so again, This is a general-purpose technology. We should leave no one behind. But if there's concerns about technological leakage, we'll be more than happy, all of us, to collaborate with our alliance partners to make sure that we restrict access to those potential areas of leakage. On a programming note, the president of France, Emmanuel Macron, will make a special address live from Davos later today. Don't miss that speech coming up at 17:15 CET. Don't forget, France also has a very large AI company that was created in 2023, now worth two billion. So uh, effectively, uh, they have some skin in the game when it comes to AI. Also coming up on today's show, the European Commission's Valdis Dombrovskis, the Executive Director of the IEA, Fatih Birol, and the ECB's Klaus Knot and heads of state, including the Prime Ministers of Spain and the Netherlands. But just ahead, the Vestas CEO Henrik Andersen joins us around the set. That is a first on CNBC interview. A raft of Chinese data has painted a mixed picture for the world's second largest economy. It missed fourth quarter GDP estimates coming in at 5.2%, but hit its full year target of around 5%. Home prices fell the most in nine years last month, while retail sales grew 7.4% but missed forecasts. Industrial production surprised to the upside. China also resumed reporting its youth unemployment rate, which fell from above 20% before the hiatus to below 15% really? in December. Apparently a really? huge movement. Which That's is, a I hell of a guess, change in the methodology, the isn't it? Yeah. Wow. Well, we don't have any visibility really, do we? We've taken the pulse of some of the key figures in the business world to find out what they see on the horizon for the world's second largest economy.
5: Ultimately, what China needs are structural reforms. Uh, to continue to open up the economy, to balance the uh, growth model more towards domestic consumption, meaning create more confidence in people so they don't save, they spend more. China tries to accommodate the situation, but for the time being, not yet with too much monetary means, -er, and fiscal means won't help too much -er because already the debt level is pretty high, so China is not stumbling, uh, but it is not walking straight as it did in uh, the recent years. China is going through a, a very major transition from
0: sort of old economy focus to new economy focus. And, and you see that obviously in the property sector, which has been a, a, a disaster. And, uh, but you see it in some of the other heavy industries uh, where Chinese are, uh, are, are effectively scaling back uh, relative to the rest of the world, uh, but with huge growth in the, in the new economy. I mean, those, those transitions, they've happened in every country that has gone through the development cycle, usually accompanied by a financial crisis, I must say, when it's happened in, in either of my homelands, the U.S. or the U.K., it generates a real financial stress. I think the Chinese are absolutely determined to avoid that, that financial stress.
2: Henrik Andersen's joined us, the CEO of Vestas. Henrik, let me pitch a big macro question to you first, because last year we saw the impact on the entire renewable space from escalating costs, the inflation story very much getting in the way of some of the supply contracts that were inked at lower prices, impacting the dynamics. So how does this year look?
7: I think this year looks a little bit like in a couple of markets we've had to see a reset. So governments have had to enter discussions with the ones that are owning the assets, us as a major part of the supply chain and I think in, in not surprisingly terms we have also found uh, good solutions. You've seen uh, areas like both the UK, you've seen France, you've seen others where they are just the, uh, the normal offtake price which then gets both uh, auctions and also projects going again.
2: One of the big questions is how do we speed up the amount of contribution from renewables in energy grids. What is the answer here? Because it seems to be some torturous path that we cannot seem to cross.
7: <laughs> yeah, no, I, I think here it's, 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 it's a returning question coming here in, in January. And I always say, well, this year could be the year. Um, the, the truth of it is a few countries have made a change uh, because it is about getting the permitting faster. Uh, it has two upsides. Permitting faster means you can increase capacity faster, but you also get access to much more new technology update. Because if you have a permanent that is in your pipeline for seven to nine years, then in reality you get an iPhone uh, free in front of you instead of getting the, the latest iPhone 15 also in turbines. So, so there is an upside in, uh, in, in, in speeding and accelerating the permitting. So permitting, again, is, is one of the key, key uh, critical questions.
1: Interesting that Karen mentioned grids there as well.
7: Better grids, more grids. Let's get grids, let's go grid as well. Why isn't Europe doing it? I think there's a combination here. They are doing it. You see uh, countries are start also opening uh, cabling uh, between each other. So that's, that's part of it. I also think here, sometimes when you have these transformations, we, we, we project the end uh, goal immediately. And when you project the end goal immediately, it looks almost incompetent. You can't figure it out how to get there. Yeah. I think this is, again, it's, it's, it's biting it, taking it pieces. Uh, do something every quarter, do something every year, and we get there.
1: What about getting buy-in across the board with local communities? We talked about a lot, lot about this on our panel yesterday, whether it was with the copper extraction, whether it was permitting near your home, what have you. Mm. Getting buy-in from local communities, because you and I have blamed the governments for years about permitting and stuff. I want to move on and blame ourselves.
7: Me, me Particularly you.
1: Particularly me. <laughs> yeah, 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 no, absolutely. No, you put the ball on the tee for me and uh, I just uh, tried to hit uh, it. Exactly. But it's true. If If they permit more, then... We can build more wind farms. We yeah. can build more renewables. And yeah. if we build more renewables, then we can create more supply and more demand as well. Mm. But, but but, in terms of getting everyone on board, do we all need to take personal responsibility for our nimbyism?
7: Yeah. And the, and the good thing here is if you sort of and I, I'm i super keen also when you sit here, it's, it's very much. It's about the months, It's a quarter ahead. But if you look on the underlying, there is there is underlying trends. Why is that? Most of us all around the world are making our own sensible uh, decisions right now you see the electric uh, heating pumps you see the electric cars you see all of that which we are actually in control over as as private consumers live our own lives that has another effect if we if we take those decisions we do them uh, with both heart and, and minds in the right place that also means that we see a change in not in my backyard so local communities are much more engaging and we see a lot of local communities where, within five years, it has gone from two-thirds, not here, to actually two-thirds, it's here. We want then to have a part. We want to be paid for being part so of the was permitting. Was
1: it you mentioned on the panel yesterday, ten years ago, five years ago, there were no electric
7: cars. Now, no. 50% of the cars bearing all you rich CEOs around are, are electric. I'll, I'll pretend I didn't hear the, the last thing, rich <laughs> CEOs. I think it's about, and I still walk around here because uh, I prefer uh, that because there's still queue is long here. Yeah, yeah. But you're right. That's also another signal.
2: Let me pepper you with a couple of questions. Uh, We don't have much time. President Trump, if he returns, what concerns does that bring to the renewable space in the United States?
7: I, I think it's a, a always there's, there's always this when you are in an election year. You you will have uh, a lot of black and white uh, arguments coming up. Uh, we see a ongoing uh, discussion on on politics uh, in the U.S. and we shouldn't avoid saying that part of the build-out today that is happening in renewable has been going on since we actually in the U.S. saw the introduction of the production tax credit in 1992. Right. And that is almost standby, any election, any presidency. And I think if I go around in the US, you have exactly the same drive in many of the right. states to get more and renewable. And just quickly,
2: AI, what's the potential for AI for you this year?
7: Yeah, we have, a, we have a assets in more than 80 countries. Any windmill has a, a, a digital print. And therefore, of course, we love AI in the sense of we can do a lot so the link between the asset the wind turbine to the service technicians to the spare part is uh, linked right to ai so you will see a lot of our partners also here in the high street of of the tech industry
1: Um, I always love speaking to you, and I loved our panel yesterday as well, so thank you very much indeed for the two bites at the chariot, Henrik Anderson as well. No, you really inject some great energy into these (laughs) panels, and it's much appreciated from a moderator (laughs) point of view, I can assure you. Henrik Anderson, who is uh, an old friend to the channel and CEO, of course, of Vestas. Uh, The US has launched a third round of strikes on targets in Yemen uh, linked to Houthi uh, militants. Uh, CENTCOM said it destroyed four anti-ship missiles that the group had been preparing to launch early Tuesday. Uh, Iran is widely believed to be funding the militants as they target shipping in the Red Sea and Gulf of Aden in protest at Israel's war in Gaza. Our very own Dan spoke to the Iranian foreign minister and he joins us with more. Dan, uh, I thought your interview was absolutely top-notch, my friend.
6: Thank you, Steve. I spoke exclusively with Iran's Iran's foreign minister on a number of issues, but specifically pressed the foreign minister on the Houthi attacks that we've seen against commercial shippers in the Red Sea, attacks that have significantly undermined trade and international supply chains. Of course, he pushed back, saying Iran was not involved. That is despite U.S. intelligence suggesting that Iran was, in fact, deeply involved in the planning of these attacks. Interestingly, the foreign minister also had a fresh warning for the Biden administration, particularly when it comes to Israel's war against Hamas in Gaza, of course, another Iranian proxy. He said that the Biden administration and the U.S. should not tie its destiny to the fate of Israel's prime minister, Benjamin Netanyahu. And even went as far as to say that the U.S. is the root of all instability in the region. Here's part of our exchange.
5: In
0: the developments in the region, we have always been on the positive side of the events. In the past years, practically, it was Iran that rushed to the aid of the people and the government of Syria and Iraq and helped them to fight ISIS. And regarding what is happening now in the Red Sea, attention must be paid to the origin and the root of the problem. We should not just look at one piece of the puzzle, namely the Red Sea. First of all. We believe the roots to go back to Israel's crimes and genocides in Gaza. If these crimes and genocides are stopped, naturally, the situation created in the region and the spread of war can be logically contained. Secondly, the people of Yemen and other countries in the region who defend the Palestinian people are acting according to their own experience and through their own interests, and they are not receiving any order of instructions from us. Maritime and waterway security is of paramount importance to us because we trade and export oil. Of course, we appreciate the efforts in the region in defense of the Palestinians, but we believe that any action to destabilize the region is rooted in Israel and its genocide in Gaza. These crimes should be stopped and the route should be sorted.
6: Iran's foreign minister there. On the ground here in Davos, I've also been canvassing Gulf leaders about the prospects for the economy moving forward, particularly in large economies like Saudi Arabia. Uh, I spoke with the investment minister Khalid al Falah. He says these geopolitical tensions and instability against the backdrop will not stop Saudi Arabia from continuing on to invest in the non-oil segments of its economy, which he says can still achieve exceptional growth
5: in the year ahead. Listen. There are many drivers that will compensate with whatever slowdown that may take place. We think the drive for the energy transition and climate action is going to bring a lot of capital in some sectors. Sectors that the kingdom is extremely well positioned for with alternative energies and continued investment and decarbonizing uh, you know, our oil and gas sector and making sure we remain to be the, the supplier of choice and energy in general, but also our industrial, manufacturing, mining, uh, global supply chain resiliency will be uh, quite, uh, you know quite a, a, a demand factor for capital and for uh, investment. Uh, and also travel uh, continues to grow. We've seen post COVID uh, globally, but certainly we've seen it in, uh, in Saudi uh, double-digit uh, growth year on year uh, on, uh, uh, on travel uh, and tourism, real estate, uh, is, uh, is also booming. So I am uh, uh, cautiously uh, but confidently optimistic on, uh, on the outlook ahead.
6: And when it comes to Saudi Arabia specifically, what do the forecast numbers tell us about the growth outlook this year?
5: Well, I mean, 23, of course, there were the uh, OPEC plus uh, and and the cuts that Saudi Arabia has undertaken. So we, we of course, have experienced uh, a mathematical decline in our oil sector, which is uh, not insignificant in the weight of the Saudi economy. But when we look at the important part of the Saudi economy, it's the non-oil economy in the various sectors. And those have continue to grow uh, at, at a very healthy pace uh, in 22 Saudi Arabia registered uh, 8.7% composite growth oil and non-oil but the non-oil economy was growing at 6% the first 3 quarters of 23 for which I have uh, data it's well above 4% for the non-oil economy uh, so, so we believe and we believe that's going to be continued. We continue to, uh, uh, to invest. We continue to spend. There is continued growth in travel and tourism into the kingdom. Uh, and the Saudi consumer uh, spends uh, in a very healthy way.
2: Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express.
1: For more market moving news, you can head to cnbc.com
4: or join us again on the show with me, Steve Sedgwick, and Karen Cho, weekdays on CNBC.